Welcome to our assembly this evening. Uh, we're going to sort of pick up uh, where we left off this morning. Uh, that's my plan anyway, is to try to finish up by looking at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and the passages that we discussed uh, this morning. I tried to get out of it a little bit when I got home. I said, did I, I asked, did I really tell him I was going to finish this up tonight? And she said, yes. I said, okay, well, I won't change. I had some thoughts about changing the lesson for tonight, but, uh, but we're going to go ahead with it since I promised. There was a show on a while back that, uh, if you're really old, you might remember. A fellow named Robin Leach had a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And it was a, sort of one of those, I suppose, reality shows before they were really reality shows, uh, where he would go around and visit uh, all the celebrities, particularly uh, movie stars, but maybe sometimes a, an athlete or someone who was um, an, an entrepreneur, someone who had a lot of money, and they would visit their house and sort of tour uh, the grounds that they lived on, maybe go in their garage and show all the cars that they had and interview them. Uh, and the whole idea of the show was that this is the lifestyle of people that are rich and famous. And to show you how the other half lived, uh, which I suppose maybe is more like the other 1% lived in terms of uh, how we would look at that, pa- at that particular show. And I remember thinking when I was young, this is silly, um, that, uh, that this show really doesn't have a whole lot of point to it except to look at the way other people lived. But it was pretty well successful. And what I think I look back on, I realized that it was simply an opportunity to look at uh, maybe a, a lifestyle to which that, that is unknown to the majority of us and also to sort of lump together people that had something in common. All the people that were featured on the show were rich. Uh, and they were people that were famous. And so they had all the things that went along with that. Uh, it was the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but it was also the lifestyle of those people who have big cars, the lifestyle of those people who have big houses and who have funny-shaped pools and who go on elaborate vacations and have a lot of money in the bank. They had a lot of different things like that in common, and that show depicted what it looked like to be rich and famous. I want to talk this evening about the lifestyle of the rich and righteous. What does it look like to be rich and to be a Christian? What does the Bible teach from a positive standpoint about what it means to be an individual who is wealthy and yet also is a righteous individual? Is it the same picture or does it look differently? Well, I think there's a lifestyle to it. I don't think that when we think about the aspect of what God calls people to do and to be, is not always focused on the aspect of whether or not they have money or don't have money. But there are places like where we're looking today where there is a specific passage directed towards and admonition directed towards those who are rich. And so Paul tells Timothy, this is what I want you to tell rich people. And if you were in that position, would you tell rich people the same things that Paul told Timothy to tell rich people that are going to be Christians? Would this be the counsel that we would give them as well from the standpoint of what the life that we would live and the life that we would think that we would live if we were in that position? Well, again, I don't want us to put ourselves out of the picture because I think, as I said this morning, I think a lot of the things or maybe all of the things we're talking about here in terms of the proper perspective apply to us because in real terms we are very prosperous and wealthy individuals in terms of the whole world. But go back to the passage that we that we introduced this morning where Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. 
that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now this morning we studied verse verse 17 where Paul presents as we considered it to be the negative side of this admonition. That's this not this but this particular structure that this is not what you are to be but you are to be this. And so a person who is rich, Paul says, should not be arrogant. He should not be condescending to others. Should not be haughty. And should not place his trust or his confidence in the uncertainty of riches. And we looked at some other passages to give us some insight into that and talk about why that's uh, certainly good counsel that we not put our, uh, our, our uh, trust in uncertain riches. But it certainly presents to us the overriding principle from which we began this morning, and that is we understand that the possession of money and the things that, are, that we find in this world that sometimes attract us, and certainly that the world is based upon, uh, can work against righteousness, can work against God's purposes, so that it becomes a hindrance to us. And certainly that comes to the aspect, I think, of the things that we're going to talk about uh, even this evening. Tonight I want to consider the positive side of that. Uh, that uh, in verse 18 and 19, Paul gives five admonitions uh, that are positive in their perspective, that these are the things that the rich person is to do that defines his, his life, his lifestyle, as being different than the rich of the world around him. So what we might first consider is that a rich Christian is different than other rich people. Just like your life, though you might not consider yourself to be rich, is different than the people of the same economic status that you're in. And so there are some things, that no, no doubt, that might very well be challenging to you that are not challenging to you because you don't have money. But if you did have money... This is the direction the apostle would have you go. What does he say? Well, he says, uh, let them do good. The word good here is the word agathos in the original language, which describes that which is being good in character or constitution. Vine says it is this goodness is beneficial in its effect. So it is the aspect of doing good for others or doing good that brings about a good consequence. So there is good that is moral good, and this good is moral good, but it's not good simply from the standpoint of of it being morally right, but rather this is good as it is applied to the aspect of what we do in the context of being benevolent to other people. And the word itself is closely linked to the aspect of benevolence as is talked about in the scriptures. So you, you take what you have, your resources, and you use it to help other individuals, those individuals who do not have, who are less fortunate. Now, we live in a world, I think, rightfully so, where most everyone recognizes uh, the moral quality of helping those people in need. Uh, in fact, some, some of the most uh, immoral people, sometimes in their life, uh, try to reverse that, or at least the image of that, among others, simply by doing just that, by, uh, by engaging in philanthropy or giving, giving away, particularly to have the resources uh, to good causes so that the rest of the world will look on them maybe with a little more favorable light if they're doing good. So we recognize that there is an inherent quality that ought to be existent in the Christian life if the world around us recognizes that this is a good thing to do. But the Bible specifically teaches this, this aspect of doing good, helping those who are less fortunate, as a specific responsibility of His people. In fact, I'm convinced that as God addresses this subject, the perspective from which he gives us is that if anybody in the world ought to be helping the people that are poor and that are destitute, it ought to be God's people. That this this particular quality ought to exude from us. 
In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. I don't know if I have that up here. Yeah, I do. <coughs> Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, God's always commanded this aspect of benevolence. He's always championed the cause of the poor. Throughout the Old Testament, God is standing up to Israel and saying, this, is, this defines your righteousness before me that you do not neglect the widow. You do not oppress those who cannot take care of themselves. That you take care of the orphan and the, child and the fatherless among you. And James brings that out as well as he defines what is pure and undefiled religion. But we think about the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. God told the Israelites, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. So as they got ready to go into the land and possess their inheritance before God, God laid down very clearly the command that they are to do good to other people and to use their resources for that. Now, God described Israel as being rich in the, in the aspect of inheriting a land that they did, not, did nothing to acquire except to follow God, and they certainly were benefited and blessed by God, yet that was not simply for their own benefit. It was for the benefit of their ability to use their resources to help others. Later on, the proverb writer says much about this aspect of the, qual- the moral quality of doing good. He who despises his neighbor's sins, but, uh, but, blessed, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. The 22nd chapter of Proverbs, Do not rob the poor because he's poor, nor press the afflicted at the gate. They'll take advantage of people because they don't have what you have. Isaiah chapter 58, fascinating passage where Paul, the, 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 uh, Israel, is, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, is, calling, uh, is being called by God to a true fast. Israel saying, you know, we... We follow God, we fast. And the aspect of the ritualistic aspect of fasting was certainly present among the Jewish leaders. But what Isaiah says, and what God says through Isaiah, is that you don't know what a real fast is. What I'm looking for is not just that you would momentarily go without food, or it's not just the aspect of the outward fast. He says in verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, God speaking, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your reward. What what God's saying is that this is what real religion is about. The practical sense of using what you have to help others. Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah talks about true justice. Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the fatherless and the widow. Now those things apply generally to all of us and certainly apply to all of Israel. But we shouldn't be surprised that when Paul was giving orders, command to Timothy to specifically address to those who had physical resources that the the thing you would tell them at the center of this to start out is that you must have a concept of what is good to do with what you have. You have to be able to look out and see this is this is good to do. This is what is morally right. This is what benefits other people. This is what is for you see uh, the good of society and you use your resources to do that. So compassion and assistance to the needy is essential part of the gospel message. Now, it is not the gospel message. And God's church is not 
designed nor obligated to feed the hungry of all the world. Certainly the examples of benevolence within the book of Acts and other places would clearly show this to us. But in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, I find this, in, this is rather uh, insightful, that in Galatians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul is defending his equal apostleship with the other apostles, Peter and James and John, the ones he calls pillars of the Lord's church in Jerusalem. He's defending himself as being an apostle just like they're an apostle. And he says that they gave him the right hand of fellowship to go to the Gentiles, that Paul wasn't some renegade, that the other apostles stood beside Paul and they gave him the right hand of fellowship to go to the Gentiles. Just they, He tells us there that the one thing that they requested to him, the original apostles, was that he went out and preached the gospel and remember the poor. It's fascinating to me that that's included there. The, the, Peter, James, and John are going to relay to the Apostle Paul, the newcomer on the scene, what's at the heart of the gospel message he's going to preach to the Gentiles, that is, remember the poor. And maybe that specifically addresses this aspect of the unwillingness of the pagans to remember their poor that was distinct uh, from the way that Israel treated the poor among them. But certainly it gives us a, a, a perspective on the place of that in the gospel message. So he tells, them that, he tells them there to do good, that they may be rich in good works. So if I read this right, what Paul's saying is that the rich Christian has to both do something and he has to be something. By the practice of benevolence, those who share what they have become rich in good works. We mentioned this morning that Paul utilized the word rich three times in verse 17. And this is the fourth time he uses that very same word in, this, in these verses. A word that means abundant, that means possessing an abundance if it's used in the aspect of the, describing those who are rich. So that those who are rich in material possessions or money become rich in another sense. So those people who are already rich are called by God to get rich. Well, rich in what? I've already got everything that I need physically or I'm already abundant, have abundant physical blessings. By doing good to others, by using what you physically have, they then they can come to possess an abundance or richness that they possess of good works. Now, I would I find that that language you see uh, thrilling to look at in the aspect of how Paul utilizes that word but it also implies me that the opposite of that is true if you flip that over then certainly the inverse of that is true and that is if they if the rich person the person who has physical resources keeps them to himself then he doesn't have any ability to become rich in a spiritual sense. The only pathway or road to spiritual richness, to richness in good works, is to divest yourself to some extent of the physical riches that you have. You can't keep them both, you see. And that's what Jesus says as well. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth where moth and rust and thieves break through and steal, but lay for up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. You can't put them both places. You have to make a choice. And so you ask yourself the question of whether or not you want to be rich. The first thing you need to attach to that is to be rich in what? If you have a desire to be rich in good works and you already have physical resources, then that places a great responsibility upon us to follow the direction the admonition of Paul. I want to ask a question here. We'll come back to it later and you can think about it. How often do you look at your bank statement? 
you know you can do that online now you got a word you get on there and get on you do it on your phone you can, you can check up on your finances on a consistent basis all the time 24 hours a day you see how much money you got in the bank I don't know how much time I don't know how much time you spend doing that but you think about how easy it is to do and how you how so many times we do have to sort of keep track and know how much money we have in our account maybe because we don't have enough maybe because we have so much but what about that other account we're talking about what about that account in heaven that account of good works that which you have laid up as your treasure of good works how's it doing how many good works are in that how much is stored up we'll come back to that in a moment because I think that sometimes we have false perceptions of that but I don't think that's an illegitimate question to ask from the standpoint of our discussion he goes on to say that they should be uh, ready to give the word ready in the scriptures many times is translated by the word eager this particular word is, uh, is a single compound word in the original language and the New American Standard Bible translates the word as generous a couple of other versions do that as well that the person who's going to be a Christian and has material possessions must learn generosity, must develop generosity. And generosity, as we even see it in the, in, in the English language, depicts an attitude towards material, material blessings that a person is willing to give them up or is willing to depart with the aspect of physical blessings. And I believe that this aspect of generosity is so important to the development of the character of the Christian because it is, in, particularly in this context and other places in Scripture, it is really the antidote to the negative side of this. God doesn't want us to rely on the physical things of life. He doesn't want us to rely on uncertain riches. Well, how do we get to that point? Do we just tell ourselves, okay, I don't like money anymore. I don't, I'm not going to worry about that stuff anymore. Maybe very difficult for us and challenging for us, particularly for some, maybe for those who have developed what they have physically by thinking about and focusing on and putting attention to those things to develop a character whereby they can be rich in good works rather than an individual that's trusting in uncertain riches. One of the key elements of this, I believe, is generosity. That developing generosity, you see, is, is, is essential to this. Because we're able to assess how much we trust in our money for security when we actually develop the ability or the willingness to give it away. When we are willing to part with what we have and it doesn't cause us great grief or anxiety, it doesn't destroy us to give it away and we're able to do that on a consistent basis, then we learn from the things that God has provided for us in our life how to be people that do not rely upon the things of this world. And that's what Paul says, I think, in passage we looked earlier at this, that he'd learn contentment by the things which he'd suffered, by the aspect of the things that he'd gone through. He'd learn how to be content in every circumstance of life. The, uh, the example of Zacchaeus may present some, some I think, uh, uh, some insight for us here as well. Uh, in the sense that if I learn to be a generous person, then that's a barometer that the flesh is being subdued to the Spirit. That I'm doing what God wants me to do because the Spirit of God is influencing more, me more than the, than the desires of the flesh. And that's a key to our relationship to God. And in a sense, it is faith. The idea of trusting in God rather than trusting the things around us. Walking by faith rather than by sight. And Zacchaeus comes away from being with the, with the Lord in his own house in Luke chapter 9 and verse 7. And he says, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to restore what I've taken from other individuals. And Jesus' response 
to that commitment by Zacchaeus, who was a rich man, was today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. So the quality that resided in Abraham now resided in the heart of Zacchaeus, at least to some extent. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, John says, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? In James chapter 2, Paul, James says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you said to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needy for the body, what does it profit? You know, when John the Baptist called his disciples to bring forth fruits of repentance, and that that was the evidence that they were really his disciples and following God, they, their, their question to him is, what shall we do? How do we evidence the fact that we have truly turned to God? How would you answer that question? What's the evidence that I've really turned towards God? John the Baptist says, if you have two tunics, he says, let him who has to give one to somebody else. Or someone who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. If you have food and nobody else, and somebody else doesn't have food, you give them the food. And that's pretty practical, isn't it? Practical element of the aspect of what it means to turn to God. And I think that's certainly involved here. He says, willing to share. So ready to give, the person is generous. And then the New King James says, willing to share. The, the King James Version uses the word communicate here. And sometimes that throws us off a little bit. King James sometimes has the ability to do that, putting words in there in ways in which you don't, English words in ways we don't use them anymore. But willing to communicate or willing to share is not this aspect of talking because the Greek word for share that's translated communicate as well is kononikos from which we get the word fellowship and it emphasizes the idea of fellowship. Koineo is fellowship. And so that's the word that's the root word that's used here. The person who's rich, who's going to be right before God has to be generous with what he has and he has to have a desire to fellowship others. Now that goes along with what we talked about this morning. When Paul starts out by saying you, you can't be haughty and proud. You can't isolate yourself from others. You can't think you're better than other people and be unwilling to associate with those who are lowly. Romans chapter 12 verse 16. Here he says it in another way and that is the, in a positive sense you have to be willing to fellowship with other individuals. Linsky says it means not holding aloof, not being inaccessible. The Christian rich man is to be in fellowship with all his Christian brethren down to the poorest and the humblest. He's to be willing to associate with all of those folks. We talked about James 2 and the admonition to not separate ourselves as a base on the basis of wealth. So the righteous person, you see, doesn't contribute to the needs of others in some cold, detached manner. He doesn't believe that he can truly exhibit what God wants him to exhibit and use his resources simply by writing a check to someone he doesn't know and sending it off. What God expects in the use of, of our resources is much more personal than that. And that's what this particular phrase represents that the ability to communicate and the willingness to share with other individuals with a mutual concern for individuals that are a part of our association or part of that which we fellowship together. And then he says, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. This is the result. If a person is willing to be generous and to share and to do good with what he has, then what is the result of that? What's that bring about? Well, Paul says it stores up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. The word storing up could be translated to amass something, to, to gather it all together, as a person would gather together a treasure. 
The word foundation can refer to even a fund or a reserve fund, and so that fits together in the language of the aspect of money and the accounting here, that what the person is doing on a spiritual level by doing good things for other people is he is treasuring up this aspect of that which he really needs. He's bringing together what truly is beneficial to him. So the Christian has resources. He has the resources you see to provide, the Christians that do have the resources have the resources to get what they really need and, and many people expect from their physical riches. So a guy gathers physical riches around him because he thinks it'll provide for him in the future, that he'll have some kind of he'll have some kind of security in the future, that he'll be able to provide for what's going to happen next that he doesn't know about. But we, we talked about this morning, physical riches have no ability to do that. Well, what does? What can secure something for the time to come? Well, Paul, you see, flips all of our thinking on its head when he says that foundation is not made of physical things, but it's made of the attitude and the willingness to take physical things and use them for spiritual purposes. That becomes then to the rich person a foundation that he can trust. Matthew chapter 6 would teach us in the passage we looked at before, verse 19 and 20, that, that physical things cannot provide that security, but that we can lay treasure up in heaven. Now that's a, that's, that's, sometimes that's a rather challenging phrase or maybe somewhat elusive phrase for us, the aspect of laying treasure up in heaven. You can't write a check with heaven's zip code on it and send it off in the mail. So how is it that we lay up treasure in heaven? How do we store something in heaven that provides a security for the future? Well, that's exactly what Paul's describing here. That when a person takes physical resources and uses them for spiritual good, it is in essence put on his account or it is... You see, aligned with him from the standpoint of being able, him being able to trust in that for what God can provide. So we asked earlier about bank statements and about heavenly bank statements. What do you have stored up? What do you have reserved? You know, and there's a sense in which many of us might immediately object to that kind of thinking and say, well, you know, what you're suggesting here is that somehow we can do good works and earn our salvation and we store up, we store up enough good things that God will let us into heaven. And that's not what Paul's teaching at all. That's not even the implication of these particular passages. Our relationship to God and our salvation is based upon the free gift of God. It's not based upon what I do, it's based upon what God has provided. It's not based upon what I do with my riches. It's based upon what God has done with His riches that brings about my salvation. But we need to recognize the impetus of the language that Paul uses here and that's used by Jesus Himself. That He uses the language that describes to us the value of physical riches to teach us about the value of using our resources for what truly is valuable. So we're able to see the connection between what we have physically and what we have spiritually. It's an unbiblical principle to say, well, I can go out and live my life in the physical way and I can come in and somehow commune with God in a spiritual way and those two things are not connected. That God doesn't care how I use my money. That God doesn't care about my, how I use my physical resources. That's so untrue, you see, that the apostle and others, and even Jesus himself, would pull those two things together. The physical inheritance and relationship I have with God and the money I have in my bank account, and he'd meld them together in ways I can't separate them. They become the, found, the way in which I reach the foundation, spiritual foundation before God as to whether or not I'm laying up treasure, either here or in heaven. So Jesus told a parable about, about, about an unrighteous steward in Luke chapter 16 who unscrupulously cheated his master out of what was due him so that he could secure a job because he had already been fired. 
And Jesus doesn't commend the man's unrighteousness, but He does make this statement. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the unrighteous mammon, that when they fail, they may that, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Well, what's the point? Well, that's I think probably one of the more difficult parables of Jesus. But I believe what the Lord is saying here is that the worldly man, especially you see sometimes the person that has resources of this world, is willing to invest whatever he needs to invest to get what he thinks will serve his purpose. Man, this is no hold barred. I'll do whatever I... I'll cheat my master. No problem. I just need a job. And Jesus says, that fellow in some ways is wiser than you are. Because you know what you want and you know what's best for you and you understand the spiritual treasure that lies ahead of you that God will provide for you and you do nothing to secure it. You're unwilling, you see, to invest in it. And so here's a man who's looking to the final, toward the final result. What he really wants. What do you want? What do we want? We want to go to heaven. We want to be with God. We don't just want what's here. So the type of investment that we need to make that will acquire what we really want It's different than the investment of the world. It's an investment that's made up of righteousness and doing what is good. It's an investment that's made up, you see, of laying up treasure in heaven. Now, Paul takes it further and says that the rich person would store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. This is the same language he used earlier about laying hold on eternal life as well. What this tells me right off is that the that. The generous rich person can be saved. You remember that question they asked? Well, if it's like a a camel going through the eye of a needle, who then can be saved? Jesus answered, well, with God all things are possible. So what Jesus tells us, what Paul tells us right up here is that that riches do not disqualify a person. They're inherently wrong. If a person is generous, he can be saved. He can lay hold on eternal life. The word translated lay hold here means to seize or to grasp eternal life. And we talked about before the aspect of the eternal life as it reflects in something we possess now or something that we are going to possess in the future. And I think that's probably the best sense in which we understand it here. That we want to hold up, we want to grasp and seize eternal life while it's available. How do we do that? Well, you got to store up spiritual foundation so that you might be able to lay hold on eternal life. But there's a further contrast here I want us to see in the language itself that's impressive to me. The word that the New King James translates as eternal here is not the normal word for eternal that we usually translate eternal. More perfectly, this particular word means genuine or true. It's used many times, it's means several times in the New Testament to describe this aspect of something that, that is not false but is actually the real thing. It's genuine, authentic. In fact, if you read in the English Standard Version and other versions, it says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the person who's rich, who has resources, has to do good with them and share them with others. He has to be willing to fellowship others who, are, who have less than him and to be willing as well, you see, to give generously to the needs of others so that he might be able to lay hold of true life grasp onto what is truly life. So Paul would have us, you and I, those individuals who are rich in this age, know that we cannot experience real life here with the things this life provides. Is that discouraging? 
<laughs> that get us down. When, when the, if we come to the realization the truth is that true life is unattainable with the things that this life provides, the physical thing, because we've been trained and taught and even taught ourselves to think very different than that. So you got you see a picture of a person sitting on a beach in a hammock and they got a drink in their hand and the breeze is blowing and they're on vacation and they don't have a worry in the world and they're sitting there and they're going to put they're going to put this on Facebook or social media and so they put take a picture of themselves and they say this is the life. This is the life. Is it? Is that it? Or it doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't. That's it. You see, that's the distinction that the Apostle's making here, at least seemingly in the language that he chooses. That that's not true. Don't believe that. Don't believe any picture of something that's good in this life, some individual seemingly that's successful, that has everything that everybody else wants, that's at the top of everything that everybody wants. Don't be fooled into thinking that that person has true life. Because true life is only possible to those who are willing to give all of that up. God flips it on its head and says true life comes when a person is willing to give it away. When a person is willing to be generous and to help other people. Now there's an experiential, I think, understanding of that as well. What do you think provides more fulfillment in life? Getting something or giving something away? Seeing the joy that comes by receiving something like Christmas morning or growing up and seeing, watching your children receive something? giving them a gift or even a gift to someone who really needs it. We recognize that there is joy, more joy in giving than there is in receiving and Jesus said that as well. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So there's a sense in which Paul's statement here reflects on both sides of that. There is an inheritance of life to come that is greater, that truly is eternal as opposed to that which is physical. And yet there is also life that is true as opposed to that which is false, that's deceptive, that is not really the authentic life that God would have us to be. That only comes when we learn the lessons that Paul would teach to the rich among us. And that is to be individuals that give. In closing, there's a compelling scene in Acts chapter 9 no doubt we're familiar with this in the life of Peter. There was a certain disciple in Joppa named Tabitha, which is translated as Dorcas. This is verse 36. The woman was full of good works and terrible deeds which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and she died. When they, they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples that heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went to them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. And Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then she gave her, he gave her, hand to, uh, gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It's a fascinating story of a miraculous resurrection that Peter was able to bring this through the power of Jesus to bring this woman back to life. But there's another, there's another thing to see here, and that's the scene itself. That the miracles placed within the context of a funeral. You've been to a funeral before. This is a funeral of whom? Well, it's a funeral of a rich woman. You ever been to a funeral of a rich woman? 
Now this woman, there's nothing in the text that tells us you see she was physically rich, that she had an investment account or she had money in the bank or she was a leading citizen of the town. But I know she was rich because what it says about her, see, is that she had made deposits into an account that could never be taken from her. She had made deposits into an account in heaven itself, an account of good works. And it was evidenced in the tunics that the widows had brought to her own funeral to say, here, this is what she did for me. This is what she gave me. She made this for me. Now she was doing what Paul says every rich person has to do with the resources that they have. And they came together to pay tribute to her life, not because of any physical things that she possessed. They gave tribute to her life because of what she was willing to give away. And that's a real tribute of life, isn't it? When we can look at someone's life and realize that life is valuable, not because of what they accumulated, but because of what they gave away. All the good and generosity we can imagine the world could possibly provide will not remit a single sin. There are no good works that are good enough to make us righteous before God. It won't provide for us a single second in our eternal home. The only investment that's ever been made that provides for the remission of sins was not made by me or you or any group of individuals in their faith to God. It was made by a single individual, Jesus Christ on Calvary. But you see, the principle holds true even on Mount Calvary. That the value of Jesus' life as it applies to you and I is not to be judged by what he was able to accumulate for himself, but rather by what he was willing to give up. That's how Paul accounts it in Philippians chapter 2. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to be like Christ. In what way? By being willing to divest ourselves and be humble like Christ and turn it all away so that we could be like Him. Because that's what He did for us. Paul's conclusion to that soliloquy about Jesus' humility is that Jesus was humiliated so that He might be exalted. So He sits at the right hand of God because He was willing to give it all up and to make that investment for you and I. He used his riches to secure me an eternal place. And that's something we must always be thankful for. And it's also something that we must respond to. If you're not a Christian, understand that you can't accumulate anything physically in this world that can buy your way into heaven. You know, that's what's so repulsive about the whole aspect of indulgences as they, as they uh, developed even within Roman Catholicism at a certain time that a person could sin and then turn around and take something out of his pocket and pay to get that sin taken away. Usually we're repulsed by that. We recognize there's something inherently wrong with that because those are two different realms and one can't intrude on the other. And yet, my salvation is made on the basis of a purchase. I am bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not by anything that has any value to me or my fathers, but rather the precious blood of a lamb. And that investment was from the riches of God. And he secured me a place for that. And you must respond to that through faith. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose on the third day. Then you need to come repent of your sins and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of those sins as you might be a child of God. Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand and sing.